what we've got here is failure to communicate. From sunny Southern California, we bring you Meet Bridget, a podcast for building confident communication and female badassery. We spotlight women who have bridged the gaps in their lives by building strong relationships and speaking their teenage dreams into reality. You will have the most leverage you'll ever have when you are negotiating that job offer. Like before you say yes to joining an employer is when you have the most leverage. Welcome back to Meet Bridget. You are in for a treat today. We are sitting down with Ashley Perret. CEO and founder of Own Your Worth, a platform that gives female leaders the tools to own their worth and the courage to ask for what they want so they can start recognizing their value and stop proving themselves. Ashley's workshops create a safe space for leaders to tap into and understand the fear and self-limiting beliefs that hold them back from owning their worth so they can find and use their voice to make impact at work and in life. We first worked with Ashley several years ago where she hosted a video presentation for one of our workshops at Microsoft, where we hosted a series of workshops highlighting the importance of confident communication while teaching hard skills as foundations for success to our girls. In addition to having worked with us, Ashley is a TEDx speaker and has been featured in the New York Times, Glamour, and CNN Money, among many others, she is a masterful communicator, a powerful storyteller, and her energy inspires us to shatter both internal and external glass ceilings. We're really thrilled to be bringing Ashley onto the show. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So how was your day today? Minus all the technical difficulties. <laughs> It was great. Uh, good day. Today was a good day. It's 90, I don't know, eight degrees in Boston, which is very oh rare. So we're in full swing of summer. And I've been looking forward to to actually sharing more about my my childhood and my teen years, not in therapy, but in like, you know, out in the open. So I'm excited to dive in with you ladies today. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that you're so good at helping people take their personal story, which includes all of that stuff that happens when you're really, really young. It carries into who you are and, and you're so good at helping people identify those things and really like weave them into what they do for for work, what they the goals that they pursue. So we're excited to kind of flip the mics around a little bit and see, you know, give our audience an example of doing that by sharing your your early experiences and then also what you're working on now and some practical tips for our audience um, in owning their worth. So let's start where you're, you live in Boston now. You said it's 98 degrees there. It's about 98 degrees in my closet also <laughs> for, the, for anyone listening, <laughs> for anyone who's never recorded a podcast, soundproofing yeah. works really well in closets. But tell us a little bit about where you grew up, a little bit about your childhood, family life, throw it all at us. Yes, I grew up in a little town in Massachusetts. So a little suburb, like an hour south of Boston. Um, and I I had a good childhood, but I don't remember, like my memories of childhood really kicked in and started when I was, when I was older, like 10, 12, because I had, my parents ended up getting divorced when I was 12. Um, but I remember just loving to be, as a little girl, like, 
growing up outside with neighbors and playing uh, capture the flag and hide and seek and just being out until dark. And like our parents would just yell for us all to come home for dinner. And so that was a lot of fun. And I'm the oldest of a bunch of siblings. And so I think I was responsible from a young age. And I think uh, being kind of one of those people that loves to be around people, I was always kind of trying to plan and organize fun events. And I had a great childhood. And then kind of my world felt like it completely got turned upside down. And looking back, you know, I had a lot of being the oldest, I had a lot of, I, I could sense, right, my parents' disagreements or frustrations or what, you know, I don't remember them telling us exactly, I just knew what was happening. Um, you know, I kind of wasn't surprised, I was a little bit relieved, to be honest, to know like, ooh, they're not going to fight anymore. But as a little girl, I didn't know, you know, what was really going to happen to me or what that really meant. I just thought like, ah, this uncomfortable tension that's in our home, you know, will be gone. <laughs> what What were the ages of your siblings when you were 12? I was 12. My little sister was nine. I had a brother who was eight. Um, my I had another little sister who was three, no, four, four or five, I think. Um, and my mom... Not long after my parents split, my mom ended up getting pregnant uh, with my half-sister. And so that added to the difficulties, I think, of the divorce for me because I was the only person I knew who had divorced parents. Like, this was in the 90s. Um, and, you know, from that suburb, you know, life to being, like, the only one on the block and then in school uh, because it was such a small community. Yeah. I didn't know anybody that was divorced and I didn't, or that had divorced parents. And I also um, didn't really know how to explain to kids in my school that, you know, my mom was pregnant with my half sister. Um, so it made it really uncomfortable for me for a long time. <laughs> I'm the oldest of four kids too. And I can really relate when you say you felt responsibility it sounds to me, and I'm not surprised knowing who you are and who you've become in your life and this this advocate and this very vocal, transparent, like competent woman that you are. But it's not surprising to me that even as a young child, you remark on how you felt responsible for, you know, understanding what was going on in your household and for feeling that relief when your parents finally told you they were getting a divorce. Are you close with your siblings? Did you find that you were like trying to placate situations or create uh, a sense of calm for your younger siblings while this was happening? Because you're also, I mean, 12 years old, you're right on the precipice of, of puberty and of being a young woman yourself. So there's also all those other emotions going on. Yes. Uh, I grew up living with my dad and my three siblings. And then we would visit my mom uh, and my half-sister on weekends. And so that was another complexity because most kids that, you know, when, I, when people did start getting divorced, after, you know, a couple of years later, you know, most kids lived with their mom. And so that did impact from the responsibility perspective because I was the oldest. My dad ended up leaning a lot on me for help with all the children it sounds like it, it even was thrust upon you a little bit as like the situation progressed. 
I was definitely trying to diffuse the discomfort yeah. and the pain, not only of my parents, but also, right, you know, I felt in the middle of them a lot, um, but also trying to help my dad so that way there'd be less friction. Um, but entering into into puberty, you know, I didn't tell anybody for a long time when I got my period. Uh, this all happened like around the same time. And there was a lot of shame around not only what was happening in my family, but also around, yes, me becoming a woman. And I didn't really know what that meant. I remember like the first time I tried to shave my legs, I just had, I cut my fingers. Like I was trying to clean the razor. I didn't know what I was doing. So I was learning a lot of these things on my own. (laughs) Trying to teach yourself. But you know, all of that, you know, when you're going through those transitions, you know, it's hard enough when, even when you do have a mom that's in the household, you know, that you feel pretty comfortable with, when you're going through those transitions, it can just be hard to like, okay, how do I bring this up? Like, how do I ask about this? Like, you know, I don't want to be talking about something that's like, you know, off formerly has been off limits, you know? Um, I So I can only imagine what it was like to be basically kind of fulfilling a mothering role to your siblings in your household and then having your dad. It's like, who do you, you know, in, in your day-to-day where you're living, who could you go to about all that? Yeah, and, and I and I sensed, right, my parents' difficulty and all of it too. And I, I probably yeah. thought, you know, subconsciously, I don't want to be an additional burden. Um but I think it, it. I am really close with my sister, who's the closest to me in age. But it put definitely put stress on my relationship with my siblings, you know, growing up because they didn't want me as their mom or babysitter. But luckily, as we've gotten older, we've been able to kind of move through a lot of that. But I'm definitely closest to my sister, who's only a couple of years younger than me. That can definitely be tough, especially in a close knit family. You take on that role. And I think it really becomes a part of who you are. And for for women like you, I look at you and I can so easily identify, oh, her leadership skills, like, yes, honey, those have definitely come from being a big sister. How did this affect you, like, in school? Like, what were you like going into middle school and high school? Like, did you have a lot of friends or did you kind of keep to yourself because there was so much going on? I had... I love being around people. I mean, I get my energy from being around people. And so I've always had, I had a close, pretty close knit group of girlfriends. Again, it was such a small town that we all knew each other, but I had a kind of a core group that we grew up together. You know, we had our disputes, you know, in and out of, um, over the years, but I played sports. So I was a field hockey player and that was really I mean, a lifesaver and anchor. It was so much fun. I loved, like, I didn't love running, but I loved the, the way I felt, like, just being on the field and, like, chasing a ball and, like, working together as a team. So that really kept me grounded, I think. I remember, so I think it was maybe fifth grade. This was before my parents got divorced. And we had two towns that kind of came together in middle school. So I went from, like, a really small elementary system to then we merged with this other town. And we were standing in line and there was um, this boy in front of me talking about another girl saying that she had big boobs. And I thought, I remember like looking at myself being like, Oh, I don't have boobs and thinking like, Oh, this, this is something now, like this is what guys or boys want. Right. And that was like a really early like shift in me starting to feel self-conscious about who I was or how I looked 
I could not wait to get out of high school and just like go to college and what I considered starting my life. Um, and so I went on a trip after my parents got divorced. My dad took me to London when I was 12. Um, and that like changed my life for sure. I remember coming out of the, the tube, stepping off the subway and like just feeling the energy of the city and seeing these huge buildings. And I remember there was like a double decker McDonald's and the double decker buses. And I was just like, oh, this whole other world and the history. And so that put this seed, planted the seed for me to experience and explore the world. And I think that adventure kind of was born and I did what I needed to in school. Yeah. Did you have any idea at that time like what direction you wanted to go as far as like a career path? So yes and no. Like my dad was a high school health teacher for many, many years. And he was always asking me to write down like my passions. And and I that, that question was always like a struggle for me. But he did, like he would have me doing like pull-ups and push-ups. And he did instill this, um, you know, confidence in me that I was capable. And I think because he wasn't from the corporate world, it's good and bad, right? I had no idea what I was going to get into into the corporate world when I went. But at the same time, I don't think he saw the sexism that exists in corporate. And, and that didn't like play into how he raised me. I wrote an autobiography story about my trip to London when I was a junior in high school, I think. And at that point, I wanted to live in London. I wanted to be a psychologist. And I wanted to write a book. I wanted to be an author someday. And so now where I am in my life now, it's kind of like I've come a little bit full circle. I ended up living in New York City, not London, but I'm a coach and I write a lot, not necessarily in book form yet, but that's probably on my wish list. So but I didn't think about it as a career, really. I thought about it more as like what I love doing or what I was interested in or really that I wanted to help people. Um that's been a huge theme, like helping my siblings, helping my friends, helping people not um, feel probably the way I did right growing up through my parents' divorce and everything. I think that that's like such a powerful way to put it. Um, you know, I, I can imagine like when your dad's asking you, like, what are your passions? It's a little feels a little bit big when you're a kid. You're like, I don't I don't know. Like, I haven't really tried that much. But like you were saying, you identified the things that you enjoyed and were drawn to. And really, when you, you look at your life now, it's like those things you're, are still there. They're very much like you stayed in alignment with those things that you enjoyed from a very early stage, where I think that there is some pressure for young people entering the workforce for the first time to pick a career path, you know, and, and that focus there is on what job are you going to have? And it feels like there's so much pressure then to like, pick a job and it's like what if I pick the wrong one you know and then I'm on the wrong path and it's like okay <laughs> you know but you you can still be doing things that you enjoy and have those threads you know carry on throughout your life regardless of um you know what the actual job title is yes for sure for sure I think my passions that I wrote down at the time was like were travel and chocolate like that was my list <laughs> I was like oh this is enough <laughs> So I'm really interested, and I, I mean, I know what my personal experience was as an oldest kid and first-generation American, but I would love to hear your insight. You, It sounds like you paved the road, not just for yourself, but probably for your siblings too. I mean, you were helping your dad take care of your younger siblings after the divorce, and it sounds like 
it sounds like you had a loving home, but there were, it, it wasn't maybe the type of environment where you always felt like you knew where to tell people things like, for example, with your, you know, starting your period. So I'm, I'm so curious because you're like uh, incredible at what you do now, but it took a lot to get there. So how did you like, how did you start to figure out like after graduating and you go on this trip to London, like, what did you do next? What, like, did you go to college or did you decide like, I want to work and figure it out? Like, what were the next steps for you? I went to college. That for me was my first, like, I'm free. Like, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to study. I don't know for sure what I'm going to do yet. That was my ticket out of my house. That was my ticket out of my town. And so I really didn't consider another option because, you know, as we talked about, that was just what everyone was doing or you were told to do. And so I thought, okay, I'll go to college. uh, I'll get my degree and then I will, I'll work. And, you know, a lot of being the oldest, I think as well, the the responsibility that comes with that, you know, given and taken uh, responsibility. I think there was also you know, through my parents' divorce, I decided I was going to be independent, that I wasn't going to need anybody. I wasn't going to rely on anyone. My path to independence was earning money. So I decided to go to college. I ended up picking a major because I had a great communications professor my first year. And I thought I I love her style. I remember doing, we learned a lot about body language and what, how you could like read people. And again, this all like, just makes me laugh thinking about the work that I do now. Um, and again, I, I it was this combination of like following what interested me, but also knowing that I wanted to earn money because that was my path to freedom. That's how it felt, my path to security. Um, so that way I would be, quote unquote, safe. I didn't know what I wanted to do at the time, but I allowed myself the ability to graduate from school. And then I decided I'm going to start working instead of going right into like a master's program because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I think that was really smart for many different reasons from like a student loan perspective, but also just to get to know myself better, to get some experience and to learn what I did not like. Um, And that led me to, you know, a career in human resources where I eventually went back for a master's certificate to help me in my career there, but I've, I've talked with a lot of clients now that, you know, they were told from a young age, they had to follow this certain track and they did all of the schooling. And then, you know, 10 years in and $200,000 later, it wasn't right for them. Um, so for me, I'm so thankful that I started working to not only pay off my loans, but just to learn more about myself. Like I, I talk with a lot of people, especially first generation Americans that feel so much pressure to perform in school and like my dad, my mom didn't finish a college degree. My dad was the first one in his family to get a college degree. And so it was important, but I didn't feel, yeah, like I had to or was supposed to. So I did, sometimes I felt lost, but I think looking back, that actually allowed me to figure it out for myself without so much pressure. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it's wonderful that you've like come to all of these conclusions and you're so self-reflective about it. So I would love for you to tell us more so you go into HR, which ultimately, I mean, we know that's not where you stayed and you started building a career based off of, you know, all your years of experience, not just in HR and not just in negotiating. But, you know, you from what I've seen, you've woven in a lot of these childhood experiences. Like when you talk about, like looking back 
retrospectively and realizing, oh, wow, I really was actually being affected when this whole time I thought I was just go, 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 meeting these markers to like figure it out per se. So where in your career you you left college, you started working in HR, like what was the moment where you were like, oh my God, this is not where I'm supposed to be. And these are the things that are that are not right or this like there's something wrong here and I need like there's another life out there for me that's just waiting. (sighs) I mean, honestly, I knew it from the beginning, but I didn't allow myself to really explore it until, I don't know, 10, 12 years into my HR career. I got into HR for what I thought were like good reasons, again, to help people and to like support the business and to make work, you know, a better place. And I was curious about payroll. um, But I didn't realize, you know, HR's main job function is to support the business, like to support the company. Um, And I always from the beginning found it really difficult to walk that line because I found myself advocating for employees, like at, at the entry level of HR, like that was kind of my job. But as I, as I grew and climbed the ladder, it became harder and harder for me to walk that line because, it, I mean, it doesn't make any sense, really, when you think about it as a function. Like, you can't do both really, really well. The first CEO that I worked for had made an offhand comment that he needed me to be more like a cheerleader in the, for the company. And I remember that like really got under my skin and I was like, this is not why I'm doing this. Like no offense to cheerleaders, but I was, I wanted to like make an impact and a difference. And like, it wasn't my responsibility to fix the culture and make everybody happy at work. Like that came from leadership. And so me, you know, smiling all the time, wasn't gonna change the fact that people weren't paid fairly as an example. So well, which just also feels kind of like sexist too, that it's like you're, you know, to literally compare you, make an analogy to like a cheerleader at, a, you know, a sports game is just like, yeah, I, I, I would have felt like I can, I can feel your, your response like through, you know, the microphone. But I also, I've never really thought about it that way. Like you're explaining is that HR really is like, the advocate for the company when it comes to talent, right? Like they make it sound like, oh, HR is like, you know, the in-between for the, for the employer and the employee, but really it's, they're tied to the company. So, you know, the work that you're doing is almost like the HR for the employees, really like be, helping people to be ready to approach different situations and and preparing them to advocate for themselves. Yes. And and I think I tried to walk that line because from an organizational perspective, like you you want to be able to retain good talent. And there is this, you know, I put myself like in my family too, that that middle role, right? The middle person role where it's like, okay, trying to broker or negotiate these deals. But at the end of the day, you know, the company wants to protect itself. And so you know, the best compliment I ever got in my HR career was, and I heard this several times, like, hey, Ashley, you're you're not like any of the HR people I've worked with before. And I used to try, right, to just be honest or open about like, hey, this is the policy or this is the way it is. You could do this, this or this, but this isn't going to work because um, there's so much fear around, well, this is supposed to be a safe space, but it's not. And 
like I'm I'm hopeful for like the future of HR right now, given our the world post pandemic and all the social justice re-movement that's happening. I'm hopeful for kind of this, yeah, innovation um, to kind of separate it and actually give the company what it needs, which is still connected to people and the importance of people, but not have that one person have to wear both of those hats and, and ultimately have to choose. I think that's so important. And I hope that there are other HR um, professionals out there like you and like how you practice. Because I I mean, I've been in that position. One of the companies that I most recently worked for, I'm a big fan of transparency. Obviously, at Bridget, one of our cornerstones is communication and being able to communicate clearly and competently. And I try to live that in my daily life too. So it's really hard when you're as an employee and in an employee in a leadership position, you're speaking like your truth and you're saying, hey, like I need support or this department needs support. And then you're getting like the very corporate responses of like, well, we need to do it this way. And like, we need to like put a, you know, performance improvement plan in that person's file, but like not tell them because we don't want to upset them. And I'm like, that's not the way to do it. Like you have to be upfront with people because it's not right. It, it's it's a wild world. I don't I don't envy anybody that has to work in that space because you you do have to balance and hopefully one day there will be an HR revolution that happens where they follow in your footsteps. Yes, I mean because that's that's why I I mean ultimately going back to your question a while ago now was you know ten years in to this field it was finally like. I can't do this anymore because I'm not having the impact I want to make. I'm seeing too many things that are broken or that I'm not okay with that I don't align with the values. And I'm tired of trying to change like one organization or one leader or one CEO. Um, And I really do think that, you know, having these hard conversations at work with compassion and empathy and clarity is so powerful. Like it's good for business and it's good for people. Um, I just heard of a company that let people go, like did a a layoff over Zoom and people just started like leaving. Their pictures would just drop off. Like, and I hear these like nightmare stories and I'm like, why can't we just find it? Like there's so many tools to have these hard conversations that get, you know, the information that everyone needs, but you can, and one of my old HR bosses told me this. He said, you know, the way that you, offboard an employee is just as important as the way that you onboard somebody, right? So how you leave an organization says that much about their brand and their culture as when you're bringing them on. And I think, yeah, there's so much room for growth. Um, And that's what I try to help my clients with now, whether they're negotiating their very first job offer or they're, you know, getting promoted from, from a director to a VP. It's like, how can you not only advocate for yourself, but then think about supporting people in your organization to navigate these really hard and uncomfortable, but so important like conversations in business. Take us like, let's dive in to own your worth. How did you get started? You left HR. How did you get started? And how did you build? Like, did you just go like take on one person and then you built it from there, like word of mouth? Or like, did you just know that that's what you wanted to do? No, it all happened. Well, quote unquote, randomly and organically, but it was a long time coming 
coming, meaning, again, having access, being in HR, I had access to salary data from my very first job in HR. So I knew what the CEOs of my companies were making like pretty early on. And again, because money was a motivating factor for me in my life, I thought, ah, if this person can make that much money and I know what they do, then I'm sure as hell going to be able to make that much money someday. And so for me, it was a motivator. Um, And as I kept growing my career, even though I negotiated my very first job offer out of college, um, I noticed that it got harder and harder for me to self-advocate the longer I was in the corporate world and the higher I went up the ladder. You know, I had my quote-unquote dream job, and yet it was the place that I felt the least valued and least recognized and was ultimately resentful at myself because I was feeling undervalued and underpaid, but not saying anything. A bunch of things happened that led me to finally ask for a raise. And, you know, the, the fear that held me back from making that ask was that, you know, my boss wasn't going to like me, that I was going to rock a boat, that he was going to say no. And, you know, all of those things came true. <laughs> but that was the beginning of the end of my formal HR career. And the beginning of Own Your Worth. Um, At the time, it was devastating. It felt like a career that I had attached so much of my self-worth to was falling, like crashing down around me. Um, But through that pain and that loss, I realized, what the hell? Like, this wasn't lighting me up anymore anyway. Like, what I really want to do is teach women how to freaking negotiate for fair and competitive and equal pay because I know how it works and I know how hard it still is for me. So I can only imagine what other women are going through. And that's when I decided to start teaching salary negotiation workshops. And um, I wanted to remove this HR veil because it used to like hurt my feelings when people would tell me, Oh, here comes HR, like watch out, like HR is coming down the hall. And I'd be like, no, but I'm, I'm, I'm want to advocate for you too. Or and like, you know, managers and leaders would leverage me for, you know, how, how to help them, you know, fire their employees with empathy, but they would never talk about like how they leveraged me. And so I was finally like, <laughs> I need to speak my truth. And I'll never forget, I, I gave a workshop um, here in Boston at the Facebook offices, like it, Facebook was kind of donating the space. But after this particular talk where I remember I was the most vulnerable about the story I just shared with you. I had this line of women, you know, waiting to talk to me after the the session. And yeah, I, I worked with my first coaching client and it kind of just, just grown and snowballed from there, which has been amazing. Can you unveil this myth for me? So I I love stats and you hear the statistics even now that there are all of these social movements that have just been brought back to life, which I love. But like, then you have the naysayers that are like, that's not true. But historically, we've heard women make X percent of a dollar, you know, X, X amount of cents for every dollar that a man makes. So is that true? Like from your experience, seeing what the numbers look like, like, do you remember in your cases, like looking at like females and their male counterparts making completely, you know, unequal salaries? 
Yes, but it's not always so clear. Like sometimes there is a, okay, we have two people with the same experience. I had this one manager who was hiring two roles at the same time. He had a male and female, two finalists that he wanted to give offers to. The female candidate had more experience. He wanted to give her less money and give the white guy more money. And I I talked to him about it. I said, wait, so what you're telling me is someone with more experience as a woman, you're going to pay her less. And, and he genuinely was like, Oh, I didn't even realize, like, I didn't even realize, like, thank you for sharing this with me. And they, he gave them both the same offer and they both accepted for the same amount. There are certain organizations that underpaid in more general terms. Like they just decided, Hey, our pay philosophy is that we're going to pay at the 25th percentile and just get whoever we can. But what I really saw is the discrepancy in recognition and promotions and bonuses and opportunities internal to the organizations. Wow. Okay. So way more barriers inside. It's so interesting too, because we're all women here. And I think about this and like, you know that this exists, you know that this is real. I know that I've encountered it. But speaking to you and hearing it is just an affirmation that there's still a lot of work to be done. And this is why you have your job. We'll be back after a quick break. Hey, girls. Take it from our personal experience working with Ashley. Her workshops are incredible. They create a safe space for women to tap into fears and the self-limiting beliefs that hold them back so they can grow and thrive and use their voices to make a greater impact at work and in their personal lives. She recently launched the Activator Leadership Program, which is incredible. It helps clients lead authentically by owning their values so they can grow their careers in confidence. She has this incredible TEDx talk, and she's been featured in numerous publications like the New York Times, Glamour, and CNN Money. And today, so exciting, she's offering our listeners an incredible tool for 50% off. So. By leveraging her years of leadership in the world of human resources, she's created the HR Insider's Guide to Negotiation, which is valued at $197. It's a comprehensive and in-depth guide that breaks down the anatomy of getting what you want and deserve, how to transform your relationship with money, and how to successfully and impactfully negotiate anything from a base salary to that raise you've been too afraid to ask for. Don't just take my word for it, though. Head to ownyourworth.com forward slash negotiation dash guide to read more and enter code Bridget. That's B-R-I-D-G-E-T for 50% off. And now back to the show. I would love to like give our audience some concrete tips then when they're going into, because I've also heard stats about how powerful that first negotiation is when you're walking in a door that you know, if you start at X number and then you're negotiating like you know, 10% salary increases or whatever based on, you know, milestones you're hitting, if you're starting at one point, you're only going to, you know, your your growth can only really progress so far, right? So can you give us um, maybe some tips about that first conversation when you're um, negotiating a salary with a um, new employer? Yes. You will have the most leverage you'll ever have 
when you're negotiating that job offer, like before you say yes to joining an employer is when you have the most leverage because that's when they really want you to say yes because you are the top candidate. You've made it through this massive stack. Well, used to be right a real stack of resumes, but uh, the massive um, online pile of candidates. You've made it through all the interviews. Like when a, a company gives a job offer, they really want you to say yes because it's been time consuming, energy consuming, uh, financially consuming for them to invest in that process. And so they're going to be more willing to work with you and negotiate with you. Um, so it's crucial, especially for women to negotiate that job offer um, for so many different reasons. Number one, the company expects you to negotiate. Most organizations have a pay band or a salary range that they have budgeted for this role and they're going to start on the lower end usually. So that way, when you do negotiate, they seem flexible and can come back with some money, right? So negotiation is a part of the hiring game. Um, it's just been built into kind of the process. And also women, I mean, the pay gap, which is 82 cents for white women against right the white man's dollar, and I think 63 cents for black women against the white man's dollar, like the pay gap starts right outside of college for men and women for no other reason, like even with the same like background, somebody right out of college, you know, will earn statistically, I think it's like $5,000 less than a woman would earn $5,000 less than a man. And that $5,000 over a course of a 30 year, 40 year career is hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like committing to yourself that you're going to make the ask, right? No matter what is something you can do. So I just want to let everyone who's listening know that like negotiation is okay. Like it's part of the process. And if anybody tries to tell you, you are greedy or bad or otherwise, right. I always like to tell my clients that the last step in an interview process is the negotiation because you get to see a lot about how that employer may treat you once you're on board. So either you're going to have a boss that's willing to go to bat for you and share with you why they can or can't get you more money or why they're paying you at X level, or you'll learn pretty early on that as a woman or not, that negotiation right is frowned upon, or they might try to, uh, I don't know, I've heard so many stories, but you get so much information that you can use for your own career to decide, hey, is this place the right for me? And it's not just about the money, it's which is super important to be paid fairly because as Asha, you said, your base salary depends on how much right annual percent increases you might get for merit. It probably depends on how much um, money would go towards a 401k if that's a benefit. So your base salary is really important. Um, but also having these conversations in the negotiation process, it's really, especially now asking like, what what policies do you have in place to ensure that um, women have a path forward? Like, when will I first be reviewed? Um, how many leaders uh, are on the on the? How many women do you have in leadership roles within the organization? You know, what are you doing as far as employee resource groups? So, all of these questions are part of your negotiation to see not only if it's a place you are really interested in being, but how you're treated as you ask these questions. Because 
once you're internal to the organization, it's so much more political to move through these hoops and these policies and these barriers and the biases um, that honestly, many of us either feel burnt out or give up, right? And that's where the frustration begins. So from in terms of tips, make the ask, like commit to yourself that you're going to ask. Um, even if you ask for five or $10,000 more on the base salary, even if it's, can I have a sign-on bonus? Um, can we talk about benefits or flexibility of working from home or um, maternity and paternity pay? So all of these questions are fair game as part of the negotiation. Um, and just notice how the person you negotiate with responds because that, that gives you a lot of information. That's such a good point because I, I read an article actually um, of, it was like a big business leader, but he was talking about how when he hires people that he gets a lot of information from the person he's hiring about from whether or not they negotiate and how they negotiate. Like if they're given an offer and they're just like, yep, okay. You know, which sometimes if you're excited to work for this company, which you should be, if you're interviewing for them, you get an offer at all. And it's just like, okay, I don't want to mess anything up. Like, take me, I'm good, you know? Uh, but that to know that the leadership on the other side is also watching you and that if you are able to step up and advocate for what you're bringing to the table and saying like, you know, without the need to feel like, oh, okay, I'm going to ask for this much and I ha then I have to like itemize every single, you know, dollar that I'm, you know, asking them to pay me extra. Um, but, but confidently being like, yes, you know, this is why um, I'm making this ask. Yeah, I think it's, especially in the job interview. So when you have a job offer on the table, you don't have to justify why you're asking for more money. You've already done the interview. You've already proven that you are capable and you have tons of potential and they want you for that job. So be clear in your ask, right? Let's just say you get a job offer for $100,000 or $50,000, whatever it is, right? So thank you so much. I'm so excited about potentially working with you. Um, I've had a chance to review the job offer. I was really looking forward to uh, having a base salary of $105,000 to $110,000. Um, I think we're close, but is there something that we that you can do to increase my base salary? And you don't have to explain why. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think just like what you did there, like you made the ask and then you paused, you know? I feel like, I mean, and maybe this is women and men, but I've definitely been in the situation where it's like, okay, I'm going to be bold. I'm going to ask for this thing. And then instead of just like letting my ask lay, and giving it a chance, you know, I'm like, oh, this, because, you know, I, um, this and this, and you feel like, you feel like you need to kind of back it up, like put out all your cards just, just in case they don't take it the right way, but just letting it kind of be is, is, um, you know, it's powerful too. like let a little silencing. And, and if the employer honestly does not have more budget to give you at that time, maybe they say, you know, sorry, max, max, all we can do is 102,000, right? But um, why don't we give you some stock options or um, extra paid vacation days? Or maybe the, if they really want you, you know, that can incentivize them to 
find other ways to, um, you know, give you, make you whole in a way. Yes. There's definitely a culture, again, oftentimes rooted in our upbringing based on our gender, our, our race, our, our religious background, all these factors play into how we show up and ask for what we need. I mean, this has been my biggest struggle is learning to identify what I need and then ask for it. Um, but, but in general, women feel that we have to over justify, right? Because we're, we're caring about the other person's needs where a, a lot of the men, and I supported men in, in sales and engineering positions and, um, you know, different industries. And they were so much more, number one, apt to negotiate, just make the ask, but they were so much more confident in saying right from the very beginning of interview processes, like, Hey, it's going to take me, you know, what I'm looking for to join the company is 200 and whatever thousand dollars. Um, you know, if that's not within your budget, that's okay, but let's not waste each other's time. Right. And there's so much power in that because from an organizational perspective, you can say, all right, we know what he wants. Can we afford him? And to the research, like even if you put a home on our market on the market and you raise its price a little bit above, like people think higher of you when you have a higher value or price tag, meaning, right? If you say, nope, this is what I'm looking for. They, a company will say, Ooh, you know, they must be really hot in the market. Like we want to work with them. And so it works both ways. And I think the caveat here is women is we can, like, I try to show up like, you know, the men that I supported in my organization and oftentimes it backfired, but we can find a happy medium where we are self-advocating with confidence, but not, I don't know, I don't want to say abrasive, but not right. Pushing the gender (laughs) uh, norm so much that it off puts whoever that other person is. Yeah. I think it's definitely a balance and you make such a good point of, um, and, and you did too, Asha, of that it's a two-way street. So you're communicating what you need with somebody who also needs something. And so you have to remember that like when you start to go into that place of, oh my God, are they not going to like me or am I asking too much or this or that? You just taking that pause, like how you did, it was so, it was like perfect, Ashley. But it was like just saying it concisely, not over explaining, just letting it simmer like not over seasoning and then just waiting for them to come back to you. I think there's so much power and beauty in that. And then just remembering like, you know, it goes back to your self-worth. Like I love that analogy of real estate where, you know, the house with the higher price tag, why is it worth so much more? It's, you know, better. (laughs) (laughs) So they say. (laughs) For someone that's starting or interviewing for, a more entry-level job or someone who's pivoting into a new industry or a totally new company that doesn't have a lot of information about um, what like the standard is for a salary for a role, or maybe it's an entirely new role. Like I personally had this experience um, in my background where I was going in, they were literally creating a role for me. Um, And then I was asked by my employer, like, what would you like to be paid? And in that moment, I froze and literally said, what I was being paid at my last job that was, you know, in a different industry, because I was like, well, I don't want to ask, I don't want to like shock them. But when you don't have a lot of information about um, what, 
you know, what the range is for the role and then, you know, trying to shoot for the upper part of that range when, if you were to be asked that question, what's your, what's your advice to someone like that? Do you turn it back around and like, you try to try to have them make that first move in the negotiation. I feel like that that's like a Japanese negotiation tactic is like never be the first one to put the number on the table or something, right? <laughs> so there are a couple of different strategies because I, the, the anchoring strategy is the opposite of that. It's it's whoever says the first number gets closer to that number because so if we use this example of number one, please don't share your current earnings or your former earnings because it's irrelevant to the job that you're being hired into. So you want to be paid fairly and competitively for the role that you will be doing or that you are doing right within an organization. And in Massachusetts, uh, I think San Francisco, maybe New York, a few places, right? They've actually made it illegal for companies to ask you your current salary because it perpetuates the wage gap. So there's that piece that no matter what you're currently earning, it's irrelevant. So you can give yourself permission to ask for a 75% raise if you're switching industries and that's where right your experience puts you. So I have so many people that tell me like, oh, I could never ask for a 30% increase. And I'm like, that's, it's irrelevant. It's all about getting paid fairly for the role. So a huge part, we, we've talked a bit about transparency, but Part of the work that I do is this practical right piece around how to navigate a career, how to feel more confident in these conversations, but also transforming these inner beliefs we have right around ourselves, our worth and money. And I really encourage women to share what they're currently earning with their friends, with their peers, with their family, like enter into these uncomfortable conversations in a safer place and start making it more normal, right? Normalize talking about money. Um, so that way you can send people on LinkedIn, like that are in the current role that you're looking for. Like, Hey, you know, I'm entering the job market for my first time. I have no idea what to expect. Would you be willing to share, you know, the salary that you first received when you started out in this role in your career or, Hey, I'm doing some research, you know, I'd appreciate your insights here. So really finding ways to use real people, including recruiters, to, to get a sense of the market. So what is the market paying for somebody like you right in a very similar role in the location that you're at? The second step is once you have an idea of whether or not salary.com or LinkedIn's salary survey or glassdoor.com is employee reported. So it tends to be skewed because I don't know anybody that's had a good day and has gone on Glassdoor. It's, it's helpful, but gathering, you know, resources and information about pay from as many different sources as you can, including real people in those roles can help you then identify the salary range that you want to ask for. So there are two strategies. If we go back to the example of when you're asked, like, hey, what are you looking to make? Or what are your salary expectations? Um, I would recommend either A, sharing your range. Hey, I'm looking to make between seventy-five dollars and $95,000 based on my experience and based on my market research. Is that within your budget? So you can be the first one to put it out there if you feel good about 
if you were to get paid within that range, you would feel motivated and paid fairly and competitively. Or the other approach, which I also recommend, is if you're asked this question, and I'm not sure, Asha, if that was like the first phone call you had or if it was when there was going to be an offer on the table, but if it's the first phone conversation that you're having in HR or a recruiter wants you to talk about money up front, sure, you can share that salary range, but there is research that shows if you wait, right, if you can just defer, like, hey, I'd love to talk about money once I know more about the role and the responsibilities and we have, right, we're closer to the offer stage. The more that you get the company bought into you being the best candidate, the more leverage you have um, to get the best offer possible. So you can wait and defer and say, can we talk about it at a later time when I have more information? So what about, okay, so now the offer is on the table. It's the first round of negotiations. And maybe you did have, let's just use $100,000 because it's a round number. So like maybe going into it, the company and you did or didn't have that conversation of this is the range I want to be in. But they come at you with a $100,000 offer and they we've listened to Ashley Perret's Bridget podcast and we're like, we're not accepting the first offer because we learned so much from this. So how do you know what a reasonable ask is from there? Like, do you think in your head like 10%, 20% or is this based off of like your own market research? Like, what do you tell people is fair without being like, I'd like another $100,000 on top of that. And then the company's just like, okay, they're totally off their rocker. (laughs) And with that, let's take a quick break. Hey there. So I am a huge fan of Ashley's go for no mantra. I think it's super powerful. She talks about it in our interviews. And I think it really just is a shift in your mindset. As in, have you ever even negotiated if you haven't pushed it to no? I know this seems so scary and counterintuitive, but Ashley Pere has leveraged her years of experience and leadership in the deep and murky world of corporate HR to find answers and mantras like these. And she's created a very powerful resource tool to employ women with the skills they need to get what they want in the workplace and in life and close that gender pay gap so important and so close to my heart. Today, she's offering that resource to our listeners. It's an incredible tool. She's offering it for 50% off. That's, I mean, unheard of. It's the HR Insider's Guide to Negotiation, and it's valued at $197. It's a comprehensive and in-depth guide that breaks down the anatomy of getting what you want and deserve, how to transform your relationship with money, and how to successfully and impactfully negotiate anything from a base salary to that raise you've been too afraid to ask for. Don't just take our word for it. Head to Ashley's website and go to ownyourworth.com forward slash negotiation dash guide to read more, learn more about Ashley, and enter the code Bridget, B-R-I-D-G-E-T for 50% off the negotiation guide. It is an incredible resource. It's like the resource you didn't know you needed, but trust me, you're going to love it. And we're back. So you you usually don't get what you don't ask for. So if you want another hundred thousand dollars, go for it, right? But the company can absolutely say no, thank you, we're not willing to do that. But I like to 
tell people that like, have you really negotiated if you don't hear no? Right. So I tell my clients to, to go for no, like push it to that point where they're, the company does say we can't do that or that's out of our budget or, um, you know, the, when I host workshops and I ask, you know, who here has a fear that if they negotiate, they're going to lose a job offer, you know, 75% of the hands in the room go up. And in all of my HR years, plus my coaching years, like I can count the number of times that's happened to one of my clients, including myself, like on one hand, five times or less, meaning it's a huge fear, but it's part of the process. Like if you are not, if an offer is rescinded because you negotiate, that tells you everything you need to know about that organization. And it saves you a huge nightmare in my opinion. (laughs) So um, the power of negotiation is yes, making the ask, but it's really fueled by your preparation. Meaning you have to go into these conversations knowing what you want right? Knowing your ideal base salary, knowing your walkaway point, like the lowest number that you'd be willing to accept and having a good sense of what is again, fair and competitive for the role in the market. And so if you're not sure that is like the absolute time to, to start knocking on doors and, you know, getting in touch with people and even asking that current organization, like, Hey, can you tell me where a hundred thousand dollars falls in the salary band for this level within your organization. Oh, you can ask that. The company can say, we're not going to tell you that. But (laughs) again, in the spirit of transparency and the HR revolution, like let's as candidates start holding our people and our employers accountable to having, you know, more honest conversations. So Again, I don't think about your ask in terms of like a percentage. If you really want $110,000 because you know three people that are making that much money in that role in the industry, like ask for it and say, this is what I'd be looking for. So there's no wrong answer. It's just a matter of what you end up saying yes to because what you say yes to, you accept. That's your jump off point for being within that organization for however long. So again, I would say on average, like a five to $15,000 increase after that initial offer. Sometimes I've even seen clients get it up as high as thirty to $35,000 more. This is in tech. But then again, my clients are having, you know, $50,000 jumps overall in their compensation. So you can really increase the initial offer. I mean, really the sky's the limit it just depends on your ask, but I wouldn't say you just have to feel comfortable asking for it. And if you're afraid to ask for too much, let the company be the one to tell you that it doesn't work for them. And in a way, kind of puts the company, like if, if you do, say you ask that something that's just genuinely out of their budget at the time, um, it kind of puts them in, I, I don't want to say you are embarrassing them, but you put them in a situation that's a little bit uncomfortable having to say like, no, I can't afford that. Like nobody likes to ha- to say that, that like, I can't afford that. Like we it's a hard thing to do. So it almost gives you a little bit of an upper hand, making them slightly uncomfortable that if they can't do this for you, what if I do this, that they're going to kind of pivot. And I mean, to your point for preparing for your negotiation, 
would you say it's important to also know that like, okay, after I make this ask, if they say no, then the first thing that I'm going to ask for is stock options or what's more most important to me. Oh, I want to work from home one day a week or whatever it is, like having your list of like, okay, if they say no to each one of these things, I have backup things that I know to ask for right away. Yes. I, I like to call that having your, you know, must have nice to have and kind of like wish list. So the, the, your non-negotiables and your negotiables prepared in terms of like, what are you absolutely? And a lot of this comes from negative experiences you know, so if you're very early in your career, your you might your list might be shorter of like, I really just want this, and and you go for it, and that's okay. Um, but as you grow your career, your list might be, and it changes too if you have a family. So there's again two options here: you either put it all up front and see what the company can do, like, hey, this offer is great. There's a few things that I think where where there's still some room where we're not you know on the same page in these areas. So what I'd be looking for is you know ten thousand dollars on the base, uh, one work from home day. So you could put it all out there at first, or kind of drip feed it as they come back, depending on the level of importance to you. The negotiation phase, right, is really just finding a yes for both sides. So if they say no, we can't give you the salary, but what if we do this? You need to know if that's right going to be enough for you or not. Yeah. This has been so educational and just such a fun conversation because I I also what I realized, which I never thought about before you started telling us this, you know, list of your this process that you go through with your clients and and for yourself and for people that you make recommendations to. But I imagine that when you're in these initial negotiations and you're using this as your jumping off point and you're getting to know the company and you're waiting to hear what their answer is that will tell you everything that you need to know about this company you'll potentially be working with for several years, I think this really also educates you on how they will react to, you know, one, two, three years down the line when you're like, hey, I'm ready for that promotion or I'm ready for that raise. Like, let's let's talk. Let's sit down and negotiate again. You already know how it went the first time. Yes. Yes, that's absolutely right. It's so, again, we always feel better if we ask for everything we want and we hear no rather than never asking, right, and wondering what if and feeling resentment. Because even if you there's nothing they can do and you decide to join that company for whatever reason, um, you can use that as like, you know what, at least I set the stage of making the ask. At least they won't be surprised when I do try to negotiate right at the end of the year or for a promotion. Um, but I really just want to say here, especially for the early, the women who are earlier in their career and maybe feeling really worried or anxious or stressed about finding a job and, and they might feel like, Oh my God, I just, I'm so grateful. I feel so lucky to have a job offer. Like, I really want to stress that it's so important, even if the answer is no, it's so important to negotiate because we're, we're up against a gender pay gap. We're up against, right, financial inequities as women in the world. And everything that you do to set yourself up for success from the beginning, right, is going to be compounded in interest and just learnings, right, over the course of your career. So, even as a leadership and negotiation coach, I'm still, you know, I still have nerves around negotiation, even though I do it almost every single day. So it's not about, 
being perfect. It's not about not being afraid. It's just about going through this process and preparing as best you can. And that's to me what owning your worth is. It's it's putting yourself out there from this place of I am valuable. I have value to give. And I also expect and want to receive, right? Um, so that way we don't get burned out. You know, I, I'm a huge fan of pivoting careers, but if you love what you do, like the worst, this thing that makes me so sad is people that, you know, they love what they do, but they're so burnt out and they're so exhausted and um, just not paid fairly for, and it's almost like the system has just crushed them and it makes me, makes me sad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully that doesn't happen to any of our listeners because we've given them all the tips and I feel like this was so juicy. Um, and I, I just think anybody listening to you or going through your coaching services or anyone that listens to your TED Talk, I think you employ people with the skills to really maintain their confidence and hone in on their self-worth and to use that as a jumping off point for negotiation and success in life. And not just in not just in the boardroom or in that first round of, you know, negotiations, but also, you know, for those promotions and those raises. And, and really, I think these are things that are just so applicable to life. In the vein of advocating for yourself and showing your worth, I'd love for you to pimp yourself out. Let us know if someone wants to work with you, if they want to listen to your TED Talk, can you give us a little sizzle of where they can go, what they can expect working with you, um, and the resources that you can bring to the table for that? Yes, 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 yes. Thank you for asking. Uh, so my website is a really great place to to get in touch with me and to check out my TEDx talk called How to Have Your Cake and Negotiate Too. So my website is uh, ownyourworth.com. And there's really two main ways that people can work with me, either through coaching um, in my leadership program for women called the activator, which helps clients activate their potential and make big asks without the fear of negative consequences, um, or companies and, and women's organizations and nonprofits also hire me to speak and host and run workshops to teach, right? These tools and skills and create safe spaces for people to have these hard conversations. So from a coaching perspective, yes, we're going to talk about money. Yes, we're going to help you feel more confident in the workplace, but we're going to really dive deep. Like my clients tell me just how much they end up sharing with me, like in the very first conversation and how open and vulnerable they are, much to their surprise, <laughs> um, because this really is about this combination of deep inner work, transforming our relationship with ourself and our inner world so that way we can show up in our power in our external world. Um, so that's a an invite and a call to anybody who really wants to give themselves permission to ask for and receive help in this space because we don't have to go alone. We don't have to be burnt out. Um, and there's no shame in wanting more, more time with your family, more money to help and support yourself and your family and our communities. Like, Yes, we love it. Thank you so much, Ashley. I, we're going to link your website in our show notes in addition to um, a couple really cool tools that you are willing to share with our listeners. Yes, thank you for having me. And that reminds me, I wanted to gift your audience with uh, the 25 questions you should ask 
your employer before you say yes to that job offer because it's so important to trust your gut and your instincts. Like if you have any of those like red flags in the beginning, usually they're there when you're hired. So I've created a list of all the questions, including the pay philosophy questions that I really encourage you to use before you say yes to a job offer. Oh my God. Amazing. What a gift. I love it. Thank you so much. And that's our show. If you liked what you heard today, please like subscribe to follow and share meet Bridget with your circle. The best way to help our work here is to rate and review our podcast. We're listening and constantly working to build something helpful for you. Catch you next time. Did you have an awesome time? Did you drink awesome shooters and listen to awesome music and then just sit around and soak up each other's awesomeness?